Welcome to the Ethnos New Brunswick podcast. We're so glad you're joining us today. Ethnos is a new organization looking to join in the holistic, community-transforming work happening in New Brunswick and Highland Park. Part of that includes thinking about the spiritual health and vitality of our community. Each week, our gathering is meant to give our community a safe and helpful place for them. Today's episode is the sixth part in our series called Revolutionary, with the conversation being led by lead pastor Yukon Chu. As some of you know, we are in a month-long, a, a couple-month-long series uh, on the topic called Revolutionary. The reason why we are talking about this topic of revolutions or revolutionary is because, as we mentioned at the beginning of the series, we believe that all of us are looking for change right now. All of us personally are looking for change. All of us as a society, there's something in the air, isn't there? As we just take a look around us, take a look within us, there's a desire for things to be different. There's a desire for our world to be somehow better. And so we thought it'd be smart to take a moment here and think through from the perspective of Jesus what it means to actually be revolutionary. What does it take to actually see change happen in our lives and change happen in our world? We've been tracking with a story written some 2,000 years ago about the ancient city of Ephesus, actually, and the revolution it experienced as it understood and engaged with the message and the person of Jesus. Just as a reminder, you'll remember that Ephesus was a city some 2,000 years ago that was the second largest, second most important city in the Roman Empire of that time. Uh, it's kind of like how maybe L.A. is the second most important city in the U.S. after New York, something like that. You may disagree with that. That's totally fine. But uh, something like that. It this was a major city in that empire. And what happened some 2,000 years ago was the message and the person of Jesus entered in to the city. Through a series of different events that we looked at a few months ago or a, a month ago, we saw that the person and the message and the teaching of Jesus went into the city, and the city, as a result, changed completely. They underwent a revolution of epic proportions. And we read in the historical accounts of the city that the economy was just turned upside down, and there was essentially a full-blown riot in the city because of what had happened with Jesus. And so we began to ask the question, why did this happen? How did this revolution take place? For the last couple weeks now, we've been looking at a letter that was written to the city some four or five years after this revolution took place. It's a fascinating letter because in the letter, we begin to see the thinking and the experiences that this city went through as they went through that revolution. And so we are going to continue with that discussion, continue with that letter and ask some big questions today as to how revolutions take place. And specifically, we're going to focus in on the issue of how we understand ourselves. What does it mean to be human? What is, what is our human story? What, what, is, what does it mean to be Yukon? What does it mean to be Michael, Olivia? What about our identity do we need to understand? 
in order to experience a revolution. And so when we get started, as we usually do with the discussion question, if you could turn to your uh, table partners here and ask this very simple question of each other, how comfortable with who you are right now? Who are you, actually? Uh, you, could, you could try to answer that question. That's a little deeper. But how positive or how comfortable do you feel with the person you are? Okay? Two minutes. Let's start this conversation, and let's think through this very important topic of who we are. All right. So who wants to share with the rest of the group how comfortable are they with who they are as a person and who they are, what they're about? Who, who wants to share briefly their thoughts on this? Anybody? It's, it's a pretty personal question. Yeah, it's a little more personal than usual. Yeah, we'll start back there. I love how the high schoolers, like, break the ice for us. Thank you, high schoolers. Yeah. Okay. Hi, I'm Fanny. I'm 15 years old, and I still don't got my life figured out, but that's okay, because I'm 15. Um, anyway, so I don't, uh, I'm, like, comfortable, but I'm not comfortable with myself. Just because, um, like, how I said, I'm 15. I still don't really know myself. I'm not a grown adult. I don't know what I want to do in my life. And so I feel like I'm, like, halfway, but that eventually, like, I'll get there. All right. That's honest. Thank you. I don't know if... The rest of us, when we were 15, we could be that articulate. That's pretty amazing. Thank you, Fanny. Who else? Who else wants to share about how comfortable they are with who they are? Yeah. Um, uh, one thing I was thinking, sorry. <laughs> um, I was just thinking about the fact that, like, as I was trying to get to know myself better, I realized, or to know myself more, uh, as I walk with God and as I get to know him more, I know my, myself more. So I'm at this point where I'm, always like, what else is there to discover about myself, you know, because my creator is the one that knows me fully, and yet I don't even know myself fully. So I'm comfortable, but when God reveals something about myself, it depends on what it is. If it's something that needs to change or um, things like that, I get uncomfortable. But uncomfortable in the sense that I know it's coming from God, not from myself. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. No, that's good. That's good. You want to give Ileana a hand? That was good. Thank you. Thank you. Who else? Yeah. Um, I, I guess for me, being comfortable is um, doing. And I, that, that I have to change that um, definition because I, it seems like I try to put more on me, thinking that the, um, the more I know myself, the more I, I, I feel that I can do. And sometimes knowing yourself is just being just accepting the fact that you don't have to put any more on you to make you feel complete. And so I'm learning that now. Yeah. No, that's real. That's real. Thank you, Jose. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? Anybody else? How comfortable they are with themselves. Yeah, we'll do one more here. Okay. Let's get through over here. So this question sucks because... <laughs> Because um, I just feel like, yeah, I don't feel that positive or comfortable about who I am because I feel like I fall short. I'm telling my table, I feel short, fall short of where I think I need to be. And I think I fall short of where God wants me to be. And I'm just like confused in general. So, 
Thank you, Anna. Thanks for keeping it real for us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, let's give her a hand. Let's give her a hearty hand. Yeah, that, okay, good. You know, you know, this is a pretty fascinating question, right? It's a question we've probably all had to deal with, whether consciously or subconsciously, in our journey. Uh, definitely, it's one of the big questions in adolescence uh, that, that we tend to deal with in our adolescence, but it continues to haunt us, right, at every stage of our life. I mean, you can be 40, 50, 60, still asking this question, still dealing with self-doubt, still de dealing with issues of not being sure of how you should think about yourself. It's one of these human questions that is with us constantly. And it only makes sense, right? If a revolution is to happen in our lives and in the cities we live in, in our world, we all have to come to a good and proper place of understanding who we really are, right? And we've probably seen it in our lives and maybe in our society's life as well. There are those moments when we or someone we know they, they learn something new about themselves, and all of a sudden, their disposition changes, right? You've seen it happen before. You've seen it happen to, to someone in your family, to yourself, to somebody just around our society. Knowing ourselves truly is a game changer. It can literally change the world. And so the question is, well... What does Jesus have to say about who we are? And specifically, as we think about this ancient city in Ephesus, and as we think about the revolution they went through, what did they learn about themselves? What did Jesus communicate to them about who they were that revolutionized them so amazingly and radically? There's a phrase that I'm going to repeat often here today, and we're going to put it on the screen. And this is kind of the gist of really what I hope you can walk away with today, based on the excerpt we're going to be looking at. The phrase is basically this. In many ways, we are far worse off than we realize as human beings. We're actually far worse than we want to admit. But at the same time, we are unimaginably, through Jesus, better off than we could ever imagine. We are far worse off than we care to admit, but in Jesus, we are far better off than we could ever imagine as human beings. And our excerpt today, from this ancient letter written to Ephesus, will illustrate the both-and dynamic of this phrase that we're talking about. And my hope is that as we read this excerpt, as we think about this ancient letter and, and its contents, we will be changed. Let's take a look. The excerpt is actually on your tables. Uh, if you take it out. Again, we're looking at a letter written some 2,000 years ago to a people in a city that experienced radical change and much of this change happened as they got a better picture of who they were as human beings. Our author writes in the first paragraph how we're worse off than we realize. But in the second paragraph, he begins to talk about how we are actually better off in Jesus than we could ever imagine. I'll read it. Follow along. It says this. As for you, 
you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is at, now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus. Now, if you have read through this excerpt before, uh, maybe you have a religious background, a church background, you went to Catholic school, whatever it may be, uh, much of this language sounds very familiar to you. If you've never read through this before, this is all pretty fresh. Again, my hope is to take us back some 2,000 years ago to think through how the first hearers heard this and the impact it had on them. And then think through how it might change us here some 2,000 years later, okay? So I bring that up because if you've read through this before, if you're familiar with the language in this excerpt, try to put that on hold and hit rewind with me some 2,000 years back and hear this for the first time, okay? And so the paragraph, this excerpt gets started with a very vivid description, right, of how human beings are, at least from the perspective of this author and of Jesus. He starts off by saying, we were dead. Now just let that hit you, okay? Because again, if you're used to spiritual or religious language, you really quickly interpret this metaphorically. Oh, dead, that means somehow, you know, dead spiritually. But, but before you jump to that, just, just let that sink in. Think about what dead actually means, Right? Perhaps you've been, unfortunately, with somebody who has died. Maybe you've been to a funeral. Maybe you've, you've experienced death very personally. You, you know what dead looks like. It is dead, lifeless. And so somehow this person is saying that before Jesus entered into our lives and in, entered into our city, we were dead. We, we were just, we were not living. And specifically, it says that we were not living because of a number of things. First of all, it says we were not living because of the phrases there are transgressions and sins. Now, these are again religious terms that refer basically to two things. Number one, personal acts of wrongdoing, that's transgression. It kind of refers to that personal, those personal things, individual acts we do. 
And then sins is kind of this overall term that talks about the brokenness of our world, the evil that's in our world, the dysfunction in our world, and the systems and the, the countries and the, the, the creation even. There's something dysfunctional. There's something wrong about our world. And he's describing this condition of both personal and universal sin and evil as being dead. He goes on to describe this reality that this deadness isn't just coming uh, from us individually, but then he, he goes on and elaborates how this deadness kind of came in, crept in. He gives, gives us a little more detail. He says in the second uh, sentence or the second verse, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit at work the, in the disobedient. What is he talking about? He's basically referring to a couple of things. Number one, he's talking about systems. We live in a world of systems, and those systems can influence us. He's talking about spirituality. There are spiritual forces in this world. They can influence us. And then last but not least, if you look at the third verse, he also talks about how we were living like all like this at one time in our lives. And he notes this, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following our desires and thoughts. So he's talking about the desires we have in our bodies, like the real bodily, biological desires that can rule and reign over us. And so he's saying that somehow these three factors, along with our sense of personal volition, have created this condition, he is saying, dead. We're dead somehow in all of this. Now, again, this is on one hand pretty negative. Right? It sounds like, what are you talking about? This is crazy. Who's to say, like, who is this guy? Right? We, I, I, I have a feeling some of us are getting upset right now. We're like, who in the world is this person to come out and say, you and I are dead, lifeless, not living a real life because somehow we're being influenced by these things? Some of us may be really offended. But I just want to kind of stoke our thoughts here and and have us think through, perhaps this is maybe actually accurate, to a certain extent, in describing our lives and what we're experiencing now. I mean, I don't know about you, but I have had plenty of times, regardless of how spiritual I'm not, or I am or I'm not, where I do feel kind of dead. You know, I'm going through emotions. Like, I'm maybe not as loving as I want to be, or I have these tasks I have to do, and I'm just doing them because I I know I have to do them, and I really feel dead. I mean, if I were if I were honest, and I think about why I feel dead at that moment, and, and maybe it's this systematic thing going on in my workplace, or or with you know you know with with the vibe around me, it just feels like it's pushing me down. I'm just feeling negative and, and kind of dead in it all. Or maybe I am dealing with actual spiritual forces. I kind of feel strange spiritual sensations that, that really are starting to get me negative and dead. I mean, I think if we were honest with ourselves, deadness is something we do experience, if we're honest. Turn to your neighbor, if you can, just for a brief minute, and share your initial reactions to this assessment of our condition. Agree, disagree, 
find it relevant to yourself, maybe not relevant? Are you offended, perhaps, by this description? Let's spend a quick minute and process this first paragraph together. Now, again, I, I don't think you have to necessarily agree with what's being described here, but I would hope you'd be open to this idea that, wow, perhaps this paragraph is describing my existence in some honest ways that I'd rather not admit, but it's actually accurate. Because here's the deal. If we are to experience a revolutionary understanding of ourselves, a revolutionary perspective of who we really are, it's got to start somewhere. And that somewhere it starts has better be accurate, right? Now, the question is, of course, is this the accurate starting point? Is the view we have an accurate starting point? There's definitely room for discussion and debate. But I would hope you would let this paragraph sink in and, and touch you, perhaps in some uncomfortable ways, as we continue forward. Now, the letter obviously continues. Jesus and his followers would not want us to stop here. We are far worse off than we care to admit. But the message of Jesus has always been, we are far more loved and far better off than we could actually imagine with him in our lives. Notice how the paragraph continues, right? How the excerpt continues. And as you take a look at the second paragraph, notice something very fascinating. Notice how right away we are talking about God and Jesus and this overflowing, overabounding kind of love that he has, right? Notice in the fourth verse, it says this, but, and in the, original in the original language, the first two words of the sentence are actually, but God. But God. He's trying to just, the author is just trying to like make the contrast very clear. But God, because of his great love for us, who is rich in mercy. Notice again this language of like richness and overabundance. He made us alive with Christ. Now, a couple of things that we're going to focus on in this paragraph, but I want to mention, first of all, before we jump into the details, some really important observations. Number one, notice how in the first paragraph, God is not mentioned at all. Did you notice that? The name of God, the name of Jesus, they're not mentioned at all. And it's really important to know that because, you know what, a lot of times people read the first paragraph and we think, oh my goodness, God is behind all this. How many of you, when you read the first paragraph, you kind of felt like, man, I can't stand God? <laughs> because, man, why does God always talk about how bad I am and how blah, blah, blah? God, God is this person who, who, you know, is out to get me, who's looking for me when I do wrong, all this stuff. But notice, God is not mentioned at all in that first paragraph. We have some really messed up conceptions, not just of ourselves, but often of God. Because we think God is full of negativity. We think God is full of judgment. We think God is this person who is out to squash us if we kind of do any one thing wrong. I hope you can see the paragraph is very clear. God is not mentioned. God is not the person behind transgressions and sin. God is not the person behind death. God is not the person who is trying to use systems to push us down. He's not the one who's spiritually trying to influence us in negative and destructive ways. That's not God. 
Now, God may be alluded to in the first paragraph. Some scholars think that very last phrase, by nature deserving of wrath, some scholars think that that refers to God's wrath. It could, and I think it probably does. But if it does, it's referring to this reality that God is so overwhelmingly good that when he sees destruction and evil happen, he has an emotion towards it. It's one of anger, one of what the Bible calls wrath. And he's upset and angry because he's so good, he can't stand when things are being destroyed, unjustly so. We, we know that too, when we love something, someone so much. When something wrong happens to them, we get rightfully so upset. But in any case, other than that, God is not part of that first paragraph. God is all about the second paragraph. And as we mentioned in our very first talk with this letter, the vision of God that the Ephesians had was that God is a happy God. That God is so happy and he's so full of happiness that his happiness just, it spills out of him. It spills out of him in such a way that he wants to just share his love. You know how this goes, right? You've been happy about something. You've been just so excited about something. And because of that, it's just so hard to contain that happiness and those positive feelings that, you're just telling everyone or overwhelming everybody with that love and that happiness. Some of you know that I really love food. And some of you have gone with me to some food excursions uh, around town. There's a new dim sum place. I'm from South China originally, and so I love dim sum or yam cha. Some of you know what that is. Some of you don't know, then you have to come with me. We'll do some dim sum. But if, you've, if I've ever introduced you to dim sum, you know that it is like, there's something ha that happens to Yukon, right? He just gets kind of weird. Like, I, I'm really excited. And the reason I'm so excited is because I grew up having that meal every week. It's part of my family tradition. It's part of who I am ethnically. And when I get to share it to, with someone for the first time, I change a little bit because it is so meaningful to who I am. It's such a happy thing for me. God is like that. There's something about God. He's overflowing with a sort of happiness. Enjoy. And so, in any case, this is what happens in paragraph two. This happiness of God is overflowing, and what this happiness leads God to do, this happiness, this love, this joy, it leads him to do three things, if you note in this paragraph, three things to us, completely changing us, radically transforming us, so that we become different people. Basically, if you look at verse four, or verse 5, the first thing God does is he makes us alive. The second thing he does is he seats us. Excuse me, in verse 6, he raises us up. And then the that third thing he does is he seats us. What is he talking about? Well, if you notice that each of these actions, making us alive, raising us, seating us, it's all followed by the phrase, with Christ, with Jesus, in Jesus. He's referring to basically how Jesus, when Jesus came to this earth some 2,000 years ago, many of you know the story. He dies on a cross for the evil of humanity, the sins of humanity, but that's not the end of the story. He is made alive after that, three days later. He's raised up 
to quote-unquote heaven. Heaven's not necessarily up there. It's just a whole other realm of existence. That's why I say quote-unquote. He's raised up to heaven, and then he's seated in heaven somehow. Seated meaning he is sitting down and ruling and reigning over a new world that is about to happen. And our author is saying, guess what? If we have come into a life with God, we are actually joined with Jesus in such a way that we have been made alive as well. We have somehow been lifted into heaven with him. And we are somehow now sitting down with him in heaven. What in the world does that mean? This is really transformative. Let me give you a quick illustration to see if this might make sense. And then we'll discuss this again and see if we agree with this, disagree, and process this. There are three aspects right here on the screen where I think this, this, um, this being made alive, this, this being raised up, and this seating can be understood at in everyday terms. All this relates to a new sense of life, right? We're made alive. A new sense of power, being raised up with Jesus in heaven. Actually, if you look at what happens in the first paragraph, how we're dead and part of the deadness is because of those spiritual forces in the air that he refers to. And so we're raised up in heaven. That means we're raised up above those spiritual forces. And so we have a certain power in our lives right now. And because God is seated, he's reigning and, and kind of ruling this new world that's coming and taking place. There's a purpose now that we're joined with him in, okay? So this is just another way to say these phrases, but maybe in more everyday terms or more relevant terms. But I want, I want us to think through how this might look like in real life. This last week, I was fortunate enough to be with somebody in our community here that was going through some really difficult times. They were kind of feeling, for lack of a better word, oppressed by some type of evil sense in their life. And as they were processing with me and as we were talking about where this might be coming from, what might be happening, we decided to engage with God in some prayer. And as we engage with God in prayer, we do something called listening prayer. I like to take people through this, this act where we ask God questions and we just listen. Like, God, what are you, what's happening? What's going on? And as we engage in some listening prayer, we were brought to a very interesting place in this conversation. We were brought to a moment when this person was sexually assaulted as a younger person. And specifically, we were brought to a picture, an image of the man that had sexually assaulted this person. Again, this is like, this is not normal, right? This, is, this isn't like stuff we, I like to talk about all the time when I go to Starbucks or Hidden Grounds or something, right? This is, this is not a normal kind of way we do things. But, you know, we decided something was happening. Something, there was a sense of oppression. And so we, we engaged in some listening prayer. And, and literally God brought us to this moment, to this person, to this memory. And what we began to realize was that, you know what, there is something spiritual happening that has had that happened with this moment in fact there was something demonic that had happened through this person that is now oppressing this person right now in the present and so we called on the name of Jesus we began to pray we 
claimed, in a sense, that this person, because of Jesus, because they are now united with Jesus, they have power over this person or this, this, past, this past evil force. They have power to break that away. They have another purpose that doesn't have to be defined by this past circumstance. And we kind of experienced, essentially, living this reality right here, right now. I've talked to with this person since then. This was earlier this week. And their life feels totally different. Something has happened. Something changed. Something revolutionary happened when they began to understand and live into this. This is just one example of how, how all this the spiritual talk is actually experienced. We, when we come into a life with Jesus, something definitively changes with us. We are somehow made alive. We are somehow joined with Jesus and, and transported, you could say, to a place where we rule and reign over the spiritual, the systematic forces that oppress humanity. There's something that changes, something that changes with us that we if we can better understand, we can actually experience. I'm going to talk a little bit more about how we might experience that. But again, I want, to turn you, I want you to turn to your table partner and talk about, again, do you agree? Disagree? Do you have questions, perhaps, on the second paragraph? Two minutes again, let's process with our table partners. I realize this may be pretty uh, radical thinking or just some new ideas that maybe you haven't really processed, you've perhaps read before, but you've never thought about how this actually relates to us personally. I'm sure there are some thoughts and questions. I just want to say, uh, after we end, I'll, I'll be up here. If you want to just process some more, please come up. We can definitely talk about it some more. But I want you to just take a step back right now and imagine with me your life, okay? And what your life would be like if it felt more alive? If it felt like it had actual power over the oppressive systems and forces that seem to fly at you? What would your life be like if you had a purpose that actually transcended the grind that you feel every day? What if your life was actually as it is described here in the second paragraph? where you feel united with Jesus so that you are actually alive with him and seated in this realm, seeing and overseeing this existence that we live. You'll notice that this paragraph describes it as something that has already happened. It's not something for the future. It's something that is happening right now. It is possible now. And so the question is, well, what, how might this be possible? How do, we, how do we enter in? You know, another way to look at this, uh, this paragraph, and scholars like to talk about this, is they like to talk about this as, as being in two realms or two spheres of existence. One is a realm of existence that is, quote, in the world. The other is a realm of existence in Christ. Another way to, to, to say it, Maybe practically, it's like, it's like being citizens of two types of 
worlds, two types of countries, two types of existences. And so in many ways, it's like you are given a passport, a new passport, to be a citizen of a new world. So the question is, well, how do you get that passport? How do you get, how do you get that new status? And how do you live into that new world? Well, the answer is somewhat easy, and you can kind of think about it from, a, the, from the realm of, from, from this uh, metaphor of a passport and new citizenship. Notice in the third paragraph, you notice very clearly that all of this is a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift from God. It's to re- be received by faith. Faith means trusting in God, just trusting him with your life. It's not something you, you have to work for or earn for, but it has to be received. And we talked about a few weeks ago that act of receiving is actually really challenging. It's difficult. That means you have to let go of control, and you have to let someone else have control. So re- receiving is much more difficult than we want to admit, right? It's kind of like this passport analogy. You do have to give up the previous passport, at least in most countries, right? Some countries you keep five or however many passports you're keeping. But you have to give something up. You have to give up control. You have to receive a new, new controller, you could say, a new password, a new, new citizenship. But after you receive that, and you can imagine that, especially if you're an immigrant into this country or you kind of grew up as an immigrant uh, in this country or in this state, perhaps, this state of New Jersey or, you, you know, whatever it is, even though you may have that passport, you need to go figure out how, what that actually means for you, Right? You need to figure out, oh, this is what it means to be a citizen of this new country. That means I can vote. What does it mean to vote? Well, you kind of study it. You realize, oh, that means this, this, and this. That means I have these certain rights that I didn't know about. You actually have to go and discover what it means, right? It takes some, takes some training, takes some teaching. You might have to go to some classes to figure it out, right? It doesn't just automatically happen. Your experience of the wonder and joy of being a new citizen in that place. So it is with Jesus and this new way of existence that we have. It's received when you say yes, when you let go and receive that new passport, receive him in your life. But it takes a lot of discovery. It's a process of trying to figure it out in order to really understand what it means to be a new humanity. So I want to encourage us today, as we process this, there's a lot to think about. We've covered a lot of things. But I want to encourage you to those two basic actions. Number one, will you receive this new existence for yourself? And number two, will you live in and discover, engage that process of learning about what that new citizenship, that new existence involves? Can you join me? in a moment of prayer and reflection. I invite you to close your eyes if you feel comfortable. If not, you can just kind of stare off into a direction, whatever it is. And as you think through what we've processed here together, can I just ask you, which one of these challenges do you feel like are relevant to you? Or perhaps there's something even more specific. You feel like God or perhaps your conscience has, man, been kind of bugging you about with what we've read. Maybe you don't agree with everything we've read. You're, you're kind of fighting it. That's fine. 
but what is that fighting pointing out about you? How can you grow? What is God inviting you into through that fight you feel? God is a loving God. I hope you've seen it in these paragraphs. The only time he's mentioned is, is, is in the second and third paragraph where we see he's all about overflowing love, overflowing grace, overflowing kindness. He's inviting us to receive from that kindness and grace. Will we say yes to that? Oh God, if you are there, we are thankful for this invitation. We would like for it to be an invitation that is spoken to us personally. If you are there, we want to know you, not just as an abstraction or as an idea, but truly as you're presented here. The overabundant, personal, happy, joyful God. Would you come into our lives today? And would you continue to give us the right understanding of who we really are and what our lives are really meant to be? It's in Jesus' name. Thanks again for joining us for today's conversation. For more information about Ethnos New Brunswick, visit us at ethnosnb.com.